This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, To Evidence for Faith, voice of Ratio Christie, the Student Apologetics Alliance. This is the show where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. Hi, I'm Keith Kendricks, and our regular co-host, Kirk Hastings, is off today, but we have a great topic and guest lined up for you today, and I'll be bringing him on in just a minute. I want to remind everybody that they should check out our website, evidenceforfaith.com. That's evidence, the number four, faith.com. Also, the Facebook page, Evidence for Faith. And if you like podcasts, you can find our podcasts on iTunes or Double Twist. And do check out ratiochristi.org to find out more about Ratio Christi. Well, I have a quote of the week that I think is very apropos for today's topic, and it's from Galileo, who said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect has intended us to forgo their use. And I guess... For those who are regular listeners, uh, you know that we go by that on this show. Sense, reason, and logic are indispensable for the Christian faith. A couple other things that are indispensable, according to some statistics that off my computer, are prayer and worship. This is from the uh, Culture Watch. It's a website that uh, I go to occasionally. And it's got some statistics about how Christians are different. One of them is that uh, it shows that of Americans, half of adults pray at least daily. So that's kind of a surprise. And 90% of American adults believe in God. If you are a Christian, if you regularly attend worship services, it says here that you're more likely to volunteer and give to charity. And then couples who regularly attend worship services tend to have happier and more stable marriages. It says they invest more time in their relationships and are less likely to divorce than non-religious couples. Mothers who are religious when their children are young tend to have better relationships with their children. So moms, if you're looking for better relationship with your children, you need to become a Christian. And religious fathers are more likely to be proactively involved in their children's lives, a key factor in child, a child's academic, emotional, and social success. So, again, just another uh, point, one of the benefits of Christianity that we like to try and point out occasionally. Well, in absence of Kirk Hastings being on the show, we have a local guest – uh, an apologist. We've had it's surprising how many apologists you run into when you're when you're broadcasting. You you find out about people who are actively teaching 
in apologetics, and this is another uh, gentleman who is in the South Jersey area teaching apologetics. His name is John Conforti. John, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's a pleasure to be here, uh, Keith. Well, John, I don't know if you have heard um, much of the podcasts or shows in the past, um, but we've we've focused on a couple of uh, local apologists uh, who are doing ministry in their churches, and somebody I forget how told me about you that there was that there was this apologist out there who was doing Bible studies and teaching on apologetics topics, and that's how I uh, stumbled across your your name. And uh, so it's great to have you, uh, another like-minded uh, thinker on board. Well, like you said, it you know it's amazing how many apologists you do run into. It's and it's really needed today in in our churches because we really need to bring up the uh, the intellectual education and the uh, intellectual level uh, in our churches. To, you know, get get answers out there for uh, for people to know. Absolutely. And it seems as we've promoted on this show, there are more and more answers, more and more evidence supporting Christianity, and that has produced more and more schools and seminaries that are uh, teaching this as a body of thought and more and more people interested in getting trained and getting degrees and things like that. I understand you're working on your doctorate. Is that right? Yes, actually, I'm working on a doctorate in eschatology, and one of the reasons I'm doing that is because I think one of the fields where, uh, you know, real solid learning in facts is woefully lacking is in the study of end times. I mean, everyone and his brother seems to have a book out there on the Antichrist or on Armageddon or something, and they're just woefully misinformed. So one of the things, one of the specialties that I'm trying to aim at is toward that. But I also, I mean, I do a lot just in general apologetics. And one of the studies that I have been doing lately is on the uh, the whole Galileo affair. And uh, so, you know, that's what, you know, I think, we, you know, I came come here to talk about today. Yep, that's the topic for today. The, uh, the Galileo affair, as it's called, it's uh, it's something that people who are interested in the uh, atheist Christian debate run into a lot because you will hear atheists talk about this. They will give it as an example of how science is in this great cosmic battle with religion, specifically Christianity, and one of the uh, – events that they will turn to in history to try to prove their point is the Galileo uh, affair. And in fact, I think if I remember right back, gosh, what was it, 15 years plus years ago, I think I read Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. And I think mm -hmm. it's even in there, I think he talks about it as if uh, it's this science versus uh, religion thing. Well, it's seen as it's seen as one of these big watershed moments in the uh, the the battle of of science versus religion. This great war that seems to you know that, that has been uh, going on you know since you know intellectual you know have been trying to you know divorce themselves from superstition, and it's simply not true. And and that's and I would like to point it right here at the beginning before we even get into the topic that most of what I'm going to be uh, the, the the facts that I'm going to be giving out today are just just like my opinions or something that comes from like Bob Jones or from Jerry Falwell. I'm greatly indebted to uh, Dr. Lawrence Principe, who's a professor of history of science 
uh, and a PhD in chemistry himself from John Hopkins University. He's a professor at John Hopkins, a very well-respected uh, secular university. And uh, Maurice Franciaro, in his book, The Galileo Affair, a, 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 a professor at the University of Milan. Uh, again, another secular university. So these are not you know, radical right-wing religious sources. I mean, this this is, you know, standard, well-accepted history of this affair. It's just that it's been hijacked by, in, in some cases, both sides for propagandistic affair, you know, purposes. And, you know, I just here try to try to set the record straight as to what exactly went on with Galileo in this, in this whole incident. And I, th- right. I think people will be surprised. Yeah, and so typically what you hear is an atheist will say, uh, you know, the church has been anti-science uh, all along, and it's anti-science now. That's why it refuses to accept obvious truths like evolution. And as an example, they'll go back to Galileo, and they'll say that when Galileo discovered the heliocentric or that the sun is at the center of the universe or the solar system, that he was excommunicated, that he was um, punished for trying to put forth this because the church felt that the Bible said that the earth was at the center of the universe or at the center – well, I guess at the center of the universe they would claim. Mm-hmm. And so it couldn't be that something was more important than the earth. Everything was important. Um, you know, the earth was important, man was important, and so it had to be at the center of the universe. So this is the kind of uh, mythology that's put out there. And then, of course, Galileo as the, uh, you know, cool-minded, rational scientist, um, you know, just like the atheist, <laughs> they'll claim. Right, exactly. Uh, uh, came along and set the record straight and so was punished for this. So so you're you're here to tell us today that that's not true that's not really what happened yeah um truthfully it had very little if anything to do with religion first off and um galileo in many in many cases made his own trouble i mean i hate to say it uh, uh he was well he's well well known as having had an acid tongue in the, in many respects uh but it it had nothing to do with science versus religion. And truthfully, this whole story, you'll even hear going back to Copernicus, because Copernicus was the, was, he was not the first one to, to propose this. Um, you, you had, uh, two French, um, uh, ph- uh, philosophers who had over a hundred years earlier had proposed that the sun might be at the center of the universe. And they had published papers on it. And they had themselves, though, said that, well, you know, there's no way to prove it. So, you know, there's no sense in speculating. Um, and they didn't get into trouble. But there's been even uh, a myth out there that Copernicus was afraid to, to publish his work. And he didn't publish his work until like two years before he died because he was afraid that he'd be burned at the stake for it. Now, first off, I don't know how you put off publishing before two years before you die because how do you know when you're going to die? Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's like, okay, well, you know, it's, uh, folks, it's two years now. I, you know, if, and if I get burned at the stake in 18 months, oh, uh, well, I haven't lost all that much, you know? Right. You know, how, how do you know that? How do you guess that? So, um, but that, that is certainly not true. It is true that Copernicus, uh, at least 15 years before he did publish his work, was circulating 
all around Europe uh, various drafts of his work, and everybody loved it. He, every uh, all the church, uh, truthfully, uh, he was being urged by many churchmen. He himself was a churchman. His his yeah. research his research was being funded by the Catholic Church, right. and they knew yeah. what he was up to. Yeah, my understanding was that he was hesitant to publish because he believed that the scientific community would uh, mock him. You know, he didn't really want to be subject to the ridicule of the Aristotelian, Ptolemaic uh, school of thought that was in charge of the peer review process at that time. And, um, you know, he just didn't want to be laughed at and ridiculed. Yes, he was up against a university establishment, and anyone who has uh, tried to publish in you know anything that's unusual or whatever in in the in the university system, uh, even today, you run up against what is you know the conventional thinking in the university establishment, and so that is something that he certainly was afraid of. But he also realized, and this is something maybe that that Galileo might have taken a hint from, he had no proof. He had a bunch of mathematical equations, and it worked out wonderful. Everybody actually loved his equations, whether and uh, they all used them, um, even if they did not necessarily agree that his theory was correct. You have to remember, astronomers at this point in time were not a science unto themselves. They usually were either in the employment of astrologers or in the employment of agriculturalists because, you know, it was very important to figure out, okay, when to do planting and stuff like this. And they, and they judged this by the movement of the stars. And so they were functionaries. That's all they were. They were just mere functionaries at this point. And so if you're just a functionary and you just have to do, you know, mathematical equations, now what are you going to do? You're going to sit there and you're going to work all day and night on these Ptolemaic equations, which are incredibly complicated and, and, and difficult. Or are you going to use a much easier system developed by Copernicus, knock off at noon, and then, you know, go, you know, milk cows all day with your girlfriend, you know, <laughs> whatever right, they right. did in, in the 16th century for entertainment, you know? Right. I, I don't know about you, but, you know, I, I'm going to go spend the afternoon with my girlfriend, you know? And that's – everybody used his calculations. But everyone recognized, you know, you're in the 16th century. You haven't, you haven't even developed a telescope yet. How do you prove one way or the other whether the Earth or the, or the Sun is at the center of the solar system? You know, and Copernicus re just realized, you know, you know the, all the math works out, but there's no way to prove it. So after 15 years of everyone saying, you know, your calculations are wonderful, please, even the Pope, do you realize the Pope, who was a trained mathematician, got Copernicus's work and offered him a job working on the calendar in Rome. Now, does that sound like someone who's going to burn him at the stake? Right. <laughs> okay. So, no. I mean, Copernicus had no fear of uh, – and there were many people – not – well, I won't say many. There were uh, quite a few people that actually did believe in heliocentrism before Galileo. What got Galileo into trouble – first off, there's two phases to this whole situation – Fifteen years before the whole big blow-up, all right, Galileo um, got into trouble with the Inquisition. John, you know what? I, I wanted to introduce you a little bit more to the uh, audience, though. You live locally in Galloway, is that right? That's right. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, um, and, I and go you're around teaching to, uh, at one of the local churches? I, I, do, I do a lot of speaking at Faith Bible 
in Egg Harbor Township. But I do. I, I um. I speak at. I'll, I'll speak at any local church. I'll, I'll even come to people's homes if they want to get a local home church or home group together. I charge nothing. You know, I, I don't even ask. You know, that they pass a plate. I mean, if people want to give a donation to my ministry and my work, that's fine. But you know, uh, I you know I, I don't do it for the money. I do it because uh, it needs to be done. So uh, you know, we, uh, we 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 welcome all opportunities to share the word. Wonderful. All right. Well, let's also um, kind of give the audience a little bit more background than what they typically get. Uh, a lot of times the Galileo affair, uh, people jump right into it. But I guess what I'd like to point out is that, you know, the Earth being at the center of the solar system, that was pretty much decided science. I mean, since Aristotle and then Ptolemy, who lived around the first century, and it was pretty much just a given. Um, sure, it was. It was truthfully, even today, it is recognized as the most successful, long-lasting uh, scientific theory in the history of science. Right. It was. It was used for well over a thousand years. It was proposed and by Aristotle, as you said, back in the fifth century BC. And it was Ptolemy who lent all the mathematics to it. And so it became a genuine scientific theory, if you will, at that point. And it was settled science, as they say, for evolution today. It's settled science for over a thousand years. So how, why would you over, just because, you know, some, you know, crackpot Italians got an idea with a telescope, why would you just simply overturn it overnight without good substantial proof? And that was... The, the you know the 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 real the real nub of the argument the real problem that they had right right so yeah it it really was the way it was just the way to think about things there really wasn't uh, any um, reason to think otherwise and and I know you know when I do talk about this I tell people it's not like they didn't have evidence that the sun went around the earth you know I. One of the arguments was that if the sun, if the Earth were going around the sun, you could easily um, prove it by throwing a ball up into the air, and mm -hmm. then the ball would land in a different location. It wouldn't come straight down. If the Earth was moving as fast as it would have had to have moved to go around the sun, that's a simple test. So you can see, you know, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, throw a ball up in the air. If the Earth is moving, it will move underneath the ball, and the ball will right. land in a different location. So they, there were little simple things like that, practical things you could do that to help uh, you realize that um, the Earth couldn't be uh, going around the sun. So it, right. it, just the argument wasn't as clear-cut as we now think because, you know, we're right. coming because, at, you know. Because we're, we're used to using Newtonian physics. You've got to realize this is 100 years before Newton, right. and they're working off of Aristotelian physics. And they're, and they're saying whatever's at the center of the universe, that's what everything is moving toward. And so that's why they're saying the Earth must be at – exactly, you're, you're exactly right. If the Earth were – if the sun were at the center of the universe, everything would be moving toward the sun. And if you threw a ball up in the air, it would move. And yes, so there's uh, – there, there there, their understanding of physics, while it was wrong, supported geocentrism. And so that's what – you know that that again was one. It wasn't just like they. Um, it was, it, as a matter of fact, when um, 
Copernic, when, when, Gal, when Copernicus, um, when Galileo um, first proposed his idea, and it, it like I said, there were there were two phases to this affair. Fifteen years before Galileo really got into trouble, he had been called up before the Inquisition by some noisy, a, a very busybody little priest who tried to get him in trouble. And the Inquisition basically figured out what was going on, and they dismissed all the charges and said, you know, don't, you know, no, no big problem. But the one thing they they didn't couldn't dismiss was they weren't qualified to make a, a ruling on whether heliocentrism itself was a heretical idea. So they out, you know, what you know, they outsourced it to a committee, which is what all big institutions do, <laughs> and. They uh, and so they convened this panel of experts, of scientific experts, not priests or anything like that. These were scientists, and they they came back with a report, and they said that this was just a silly idea based on their understanding of science. And so uh, you know you can count up how many religious how many religious objections they have in this list. Okay, first off, they said it violated common sense. All right. Okay, the Earth yeah, doesn't there you seem go. to move, and the sun and stars do move, right? So that seems to violate common sense. Um, it violated 2,000 years of astronomical theory, which, you know, they had been observing the heavens since Egypt and right. never saw, you know, anything different. And um, it subverted the fundamental pr- principles of Aristotelian physics, like you know, just like you said. And so right. there was no observational data to support it. And there was there was some predictive phenomena that was that was what what was called parallax, and that had never been observed. Parallax is when some a star comes in the gravitational field of the sun. You should see two stars because the gravitational field of the sun should bend some of the rays of the light coming from the sun, and should so you should actually see two stars for a brief time. You should mm-hmm. see that if the if the Earth was moving, but we didn't have telescopes that were sharp enough to be able to do that, and so that wouldn't be observed until the 19th century. And so they said, you know, we, we don't see parallax. There's nothing. You know, there's no evidence for this. And so they said that, you know, and so what the Inquisition said at this time was that, okay, Galileo, we're going to give you a slap on the wrist. The only thing you cannot do is support is publicly support the heliocentric theory. All right, that's it. And he agreed to that. All right. Mm-hmm. So now, 15 years later, he decides he's going to write a book, and to try to get around, I guess what you would say this um, this prohibition, he writes it in the form of a dialogue. Right. And and anyone who's read uh, medieval or ancient uh, writings will recognize this kind of format, where you have two guys discussing the topic under under discussion and then there's one guy which basically represents the audience and he asks questions he you know that represents the reader he's asking the questions and then you have one guy who takes one side and you have another guy who takes the other side and defending heliocentrism is mr know-it-all scientist he is you know wonderful smart intelligent and right. he's basically <laughs> representing galileo right on the other side is Reverend Stupido. <laughs> he is like the biggest idiot on the planet, and he's representing geocentrism. And he's basically taking the church's position. And there's no question that he is, you know, on the church's side, and he is not the brightest 
star in the universe. We'll put it that way. All right. Mm -hmm. And so this is somewhat, you could say, obviously lopsided. But technically, he's not defending the heliocentric theory. And he sends it to the office of the censor in Rome. Now, it passes the office of the censor. Now, when I say censor, this, again, is something else that people sort of get their, uh, Backs their up hair about, on yeah. all, all on end about. Right. And that is be because we think, when we hear the word censor, we think of, you know, getting sent to the gulag and the old USSR or something. Mm. And that is not what this was. This was basically what we would recognize more closely as peer review today. The censor, the, the, we we got to remember that the church was the government. The church was the university at this time, all right? right. There was no right. separation of church and university or church and state. And uh, so the university establishment had an office where you would send your book, and he and that, that and the person in that office was responsible for making sure it got sent to the proper uh, expert who knew what they were talking about. And so this, the, the office of the censor sent it to other mathematicians, sent Galileo's book to other mathematicians. They did not review it for political correctness. They did not review it for religious doctrine. They reviewed it for whether the science in it was sound. And it was. They passed it. You know, they, if they had actually reviewed it for whether it was offensive to the church, they might have actually saved Galileo a whole bunch of headache. But they didn't. They reviewed it for whether his arguments were sound. And they were. The thing is actually, though, what, back when Galileo originally argued with the committee over the scientific proof, he thought that he had proof. He said that the tides proved that the earth was moving. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. And he, oh, that's interesting. Yes, and most people don't realize this. He thought that he had proof. This is why he was so defensive about this. He he said the tides caused. As a matter of fact, the original the original title for this book, which turned out, which was originally, which now, which came, it was the original title was on the tides. He was originally going to present it. So his his central proof about the tides being, the, the Earth's motion being the cause of the tides was actually supposed to be the center of this book. He eventually changed it to a dialogue on the two chief world systems. Um, but originally he was, he, he was showcasing his proof about the tides being proof of the Earth's motion. And of course we know today that he was totally wrong on that. Mm. And so that, uh, you know, his... The, the, the science scientists of his age were trying to tell him, look, be a little bit more cautious in your definition of proof. You know, the tides could be caused by something other than what you think. And they were right. Right. You know, it turns out that they were so right. So he, he must have thought that the water was somehow being, like, left behind as the earth moved. It was kind of sloshing exactly. to one side. That's exactly what he said. He said it was sloshing around like water does in a bucket when you move it. Oh. <laughs> and fun. that's what he thought was, was causing the tides. Okay. And he also said that his his observations through the telescope of the moons of Jupiter, you know, that's a famous one. But right. you know what? Truthfully, um, uh, Bellarmino, who was another famous um, uh, uh, church astronomer, wrote him back on that proof. And he said, you know, that there are other geocentric models that could account for that. For instance, 
um, a, a, a one of the models that they had was that the Jupiter actually orbited the Sun, and the Sun with that orbited around the Earth, which would account for Galileo's observations. Uh-huh. The, again, right. the, the point being, there are other ways that could. It's not conclusive. There are other there are other ways that could account for, you know, what, what you're um, doing. The one proof that would not be able to be explained by geocentrism would be stellar parallax, and we can't observe it. It's we do we don't have we don't have instruments sensitive enough. So why don't you just sort of hold your horse until we can you know do something? But Galileo wouldn't. You know, it turns out all the things that he had that he considered to be you know knockdown proofs were either in, really inconclusive or flat out wrong. And the, actually, the church was actually right. In, 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 in every case, in every single case down the line. And most people, if you read his book, he's wrong in every case. Well, if you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks, and we're speaking with apologist John Conforti about the Galileo affair. So, John, um, how is it then if, you know... Um, there was kind of this slap on the wrist and, and things like that. How is it then that we hear this story that Galileo was excommunicated and imprisoned or whatever? You know, I don't know well, if he was racked or crucified or what. <laughs> well, you know, it actually should have that should have been the end of it. You know, when he published the book, it, it came to the to the attention of the Inquisition again, and it was actually a technical question: Did you violate your agreement not to defend the heliocentric system that you agreed 15 years ago. It was a technical legal question. They said yes. He tried to defend himself. He said, well, I, I never imagined that this was defending heliocentrism. They said, go read your own book and then come back and you tell us. And then he said, well, you know what? Actually, yeah, I can see how it could, you know. And they said they gave him a slap on the wrist and they said, okay, you know, go and be happy but here's the thing it had to be a that that verdict had to be approved by the pope now i neglected to mention a small important detail did i mention that the pope was a personal friend of galileo yeah no, they grew you, up you together yet yep they grew up together they were personal friends and when the pope got elected Galileo was received not once, but six times in six audiences. And I can imagine those audiences. We don't have minutes. But, you know, can you imagine, like, if your best friend got elected pope, you know, you'd be in there like, say, look, I got these these golden slippers. Look at those gold slippers, you know. (laughs) I mean, I know I'd be doing that. And so, you know, two old friends, you know. And so we do know from accounts of these conversations later on from both guys that this Writing this book was mentioned, and Galileo said, "You know, they, you know, can I write this book?" And the Pope said, "Sure, go ahead, write your book." And so he had the Pope's approval. But when the Pope gave that approval, he said, "But I want you to include this one argument. It's my favorite argument in the world, and that is that because God is sovereign, God can do anything He wants and make it look any way that He wants it to look like." My favorite argument, right? <laughs> Which doesn't sound like well, a very good argument. Galileo did include the, the the argument, but he includes it on the very last page. Now he could have put it in the in the mouth of Mister Intelligent Know It All Scientist. Does he do that? No. 
he could have put it as a good summary from the neutral guy who's asking the questions. You know, he could have said, you know, I don't know which of you guys is right, but, you know, God is sovereign. He could have made the, look, the world look any way he wants. You know, that would have been a nice Either summary. Way. Yeah, that's know? right. But he didn't do that. Where does he put the Pope's favorite argument? In the mouth of Reverend Stupido. <laughs> right. Okay? Do you think the Pope was really happy with this? Right. No, he was not. He had told all of his friends, Galileo's writing this book, and he's going to include my favorite argument and everything. He was livid. He went through the roof. As a matter of fact, he was heard yelling through. He said, I have been betrayed. Because also, Galileo had neglected to mention that he was not supposed to write on the heliocentric theory. He forgot to mention that to the Pope. Oh. <laughs> so, he, so he got in trouble with his own inquisitors and... He, you know, his favorite argument has just been, you know, and this is a pope that is dealing with the Protestant Reformation. He's got the Thirty Years' War in his hand, and now his best friend has just made him look like an idiot in front of all of Europe. <laughs> so when this slap on the wrist verdict comes before him, he rips it up, sends it back, and he says, "Absolutely not. I want this." Okay, well, it sounds like we lost John, our guest, so we will just continue on. Uh, let's see, maybe he can come and Skype back in if John, our engineer, can get him back on the line, and we will try and continue. Hello. Ah. I got cut off. I don't know what happened. Okay. Well, anyway. you are back. Yep. And, all right, it's, uh, as long as John, the engineer, says everything is okay, we'll proceed. Yes. Anyway, yep. He um, says he says everything's okay. All right. Okay. So let's uh, let's so uh, back up a little bit then. So um, anyway, we were talking about the, the Pope being Galileo. I mean, can you imagine if you you're at the height of your career, you have just been elected Pope, you're dealing with the Reformation, the Thirty Years' War, and your best friend just made you look like an idiot in front of all of Europe, right? You don't need this, you know. And that is really why Galileo ends up getting pilloried. Yes. He was pulled out, and he was told to publicly recant. He was not tortured. He was not put in jail. He was not, you know, there were not any limbs cut off or anything like that. <laughs> so no okay. jail time. No jail time. He did have to, he, he was he was under house arrest, what amounted to for the rest of his life, because he only lived two more years. Um, but, you know, it was, on, it was house arrest. It was not, you know, in some dark dungeon in Rome. Gotcha. It was, uh, you know, and, and he did have to publicly recant his book, you know, say that he did not, you know, he did not believe in heliocentrism and everything. So he was publicly humiliated, but he had just humiliated the Pope. That, and that's really the whole, this was a, this was a, this, this whole thing came down to a personal animosity, a, per, a personal insult, and the scientific establishment. It was, it was, it, it was scientifically untenable to, you know, overthrow what had been the most successful scientific theory, you know, that, that, that there was. There was nothing religious in this, uh, you know, in this uh, whole affair. This had nothing to do with the, um, the church, you know, in biblical. In fact, there was a, a point in here where Galileo did say that if heliocentrism is right, we would have to reinterpret parts of the Bible and he then presented his own interpretation, for instance, of the Joshua story, where Joshua asked ask God to have the sun stand still, mm -hmm. and he said, we'd well, have to reinterpret this. 
And then he provides his own interpretation. And that was in a letter to, uh, I think it was Catherine de' Medici that uh, he, he had sent that in a letter. And the Inquisition said, well, you know what, Galileo, don't go doing that. Um, if you have proof that the sun is at the center of the universe, we will accept that, and that's fine. They even said that, you know, that's fine. If you've got proof that convinces your colleagues at the university, that's fine. We'll accept that. But let when uh, we will do the reinterpretation of the Bible. We are theologians. You right. are an astronomer. We we trust that you know what you're talking about when it comes to astronomy. We will do the reinterpretation of the Bible. We're the experts in that field. And you know, even today, you've been in academia. You don't go stepping on other people's toes. You don't go telling other experts how to do their job, right? Right. Right. That's exactly. an absolute no-no. Now, did that happen? You know? Did that? Uh portion happened before uh he published um yes that that happened that had happened so, um, so he was already creating fact, um you know bad blood uh, even amongst uh you know the scientists and the and the theologians yes and 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 it happened specifically in Gal- as a matter of fact that was part of what prompted you know that the busybody priest that originally brought him up to the inquisition's attention that was part of what got him into trouble he had written this letter to one of the de Medici's, and in it he had interpreted the Bible, you know, had done some Bible interpretation, and this busybody priest somehow got a hold of this letter. Interestingly enough, uh, uh, some of the more damning phrases that uh, were used appear only in the copy that was sent to the Inquisition. Galileo's personal copy and the copy that the Medici had, which were sent then subsequently to the Inquisition, um, didn't have these phrases in it. So then that's that's why the Inquisition ended up dismissing these charges, because the Inquisition said, where where did this copy come from? And they said, well, from this busybody priest. You could almost see them rolling their eyes. You know, it's like, oh, oh yeah, okay, well, that he had yeah. added it in. Right. You know, they're not stupid. And, you know, there's this, there's this perception out there that, you know, the Inquisition was this out-of-control, fire-branding, burning uh, institution that there was no control over. This was a very well-controlled institution that, you know, had... Scholars are actually very surprised that when they read the records of particularly the Roman Inquisition. Now, the Spanish Inquisition, yes, there's a there was a time, like under Torquemada, where it did get out of control. Absolutely. Right. It but, depended on who it was that was in charge, basically. It, exactly. But you got to remember, the, the Inquisition was a European-wide institution. It wasn't just Spain, okay? And for the most part, through most of its history, it was a very civilized, orderly, uh, that uh, institution that paid attention very scrupulously to uh, to due process, to you know a whole the institutional uh, regulations, etc. And you know, it, and it wasn't they weren't stupid, they weren't idiots, you know. So when they you know got a, a case like this, and they got you know this like I said this busybody priest named Cochina who submitted this thing, and they they knew he added it in. Come on, you know. They dismissed it immediately. The only thing, like I said, they they weren't scientists, so they you know sent it out and they outsourced it, and you know it came back. But it was the university institution that had a problem with it because they said Galileo, you've got no scientific proof, and that is really what it came down to. This was a this was a this was an issue about science and ultimately about personal animosity. 
So now the, you sometimes hear uh, you get, or at least you get the impression that the atheists are trying to dress up Galileo as the uh, atheistic modern day scientist, uh, you know, who doesn't think about. Um, God or doesn't think that God caused things. So was that true? Was Galileo a very non-religious, uh, atheistic uh, person? Absolutely not. He was a very uh, devoted Catholic. Um, and he, in fact, one that, that's one of the reasons why he wanted to reinterpret Scripture. He didn't think, you know, that it wasn't, he didn't reject Scripture. When he when he found the proofs that he did, quote-unquote, what he thought was proof, he didn't just say, oh, Scripture's wrong. He said that it just means that we have to look at Scripture. And when, uh, when, the, when Pope John Paul II reopened this case in the 90s, um, they reaffirmed that when Gal- that truthfully Galileo's reinterpretation followed good Augustinian principles of theology. He was, uh, you know, uh, actually a fairly good interpreter of Scripture, and he was, you know, following the conventions of his time. So I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say at all that, that Galileo showed any signs of, of, of atheism or atheistic tendencies. If anything, he showed good, uh, good Catholic uh, interpretations, uh, tendencies of his time. And beliefs, yeah. So uh, his only uh, – it seems like his real problem um, was his personality. From what I understand, mm-hmm. he was considered quite the egotist. Um, you know, he was truly was a genius. He truly was a brilliant scientist. Um, you know, he was a Who mathematician. Um, the gladly. astronomy and mathematics, um, you know, were were really integrated Um well, as they are today, but and he was a you know a musician. Um, he was kind of your Renaissance man. Mm-hmm. And he did, like I said, he didn't suffer fools gladly. And he was caught in a time when science itself was changing. Science, like I said, as astronomers were functionaries at this point in time, and they were changing over from being just simple functionaries who were just there to get an answer right to beginning to try to understand how the universe worked. In a, in, a, in a generation or two later, you would have Newton and, and Kepler who would be trying to understand science as a way of understanding how the universe worked as opposed to just getting the answer right. And so he's caught in that sort of tidal wave of change, and he's at that vanguard who wants to understand how the universe works, and they're trying – and he's being faced with an institution that's saying, why are you trying to figure out, well, who cares how the universe works? We just need to get the right answer. Right. You yeah, know they I mean? wanted to know, for one thing, they wanted to know things like lunar eclipses, and you know, they wanted to know when Easter was going to be. Right. Um, you know, they right. wanted to know about solar eclipses and the position of the planets because astrology was actually a lot part of astronomy still in those days. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of it was just the, you know, trying to calculate when when are things going to happen like Easter. Yeah, just the practical everyday issues, you know, when when do we plant our crops and stuff like that. And, you know, so Galileo, don't sit there and try to figure out, you know, it's because it really doesn't make a hill of beans as to which goes around which. Just give us the right answer. And so, you know, he's faced with that institutionalized university mentality. And, you know, there's any number of scientists and, and truthfully theologians who would bump into that over the centuries. You know, this is not just a 
scientific issue. It's 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 a human issue. So yeah, bringing it to today, then is this the kind of thing that scientists face when they are trying to advance newer theories and things like intelligent design and having problems because the old paradigms, the old guard, are uh, kind of defending the gates. Oh, absolutely. Um, I can give you a, 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 an excellent example of that, and that is um, when uh, the, the, the badlands in uh, Washington State were being evaluated. There was a guy who in the 20s suggested that it was caused by a huge flood that came through there uh, subsequent to an ice age. And the, the geological institution at the time, the American Geological Survey, said absolutely not. Can't be that because it sounds too much like the Bible. That was exactly the right. reason. <laughs> and it took 60 years for that generation sort of to die off for people to reevaluate this theory, and they eventually agreed. Now, today, that is the prevailing theory of how the Badlands in Washington were formed. And they finally, the American Geological Survey gave this guy, at 80 years old, gave him a, a, their, their highest award, a medal, for coming up with this theory. But he had to wait 60 years for this to be finally vindicated because you run into that right. mentality of no, 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 because of you know right. the prejudice against new ideas. Very good. Well, John, it's been a pleasure having you on. Uh, you've been listening to John Comforti, uh, a local apologist in the South Jersey area, on Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Uh, send your comments and questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com. Join us again next week for more reasons to believe, and always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,